Makoto. How are you all? Welcome to this week's podcast, Who You Come Home podcast. Um, this week we have the incredible uh, Mr. Sam Carpenter. Uh, Sam is a lawyer slash historian slash lover of New Zealand's history, lover of Tatiriti or Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi. He works for the Waitangi Tribunal. He has uh, given evidence uh, in, in Waitangi Tribunal claims, particularly the Napui claim. Uh, and he is just a pool of wisdom. And I got to sit down with Sam a few weeks ago down in Wellington uh, and ask him a whole bunch of questions about who he is, what he does, why he does, and really this podcast is about digging into a little bit of the history around the signing of Tatiritu or Waitangi or the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, so the last couple of weeks we've been focusing on the Huia metaphor. This week we're taking a bit of a um, step away from that to talk more about uh, to talk more specifically about the Treaty of Waitangi. Now the reason for that is because Sam runs a ministry called Karufa. Um, that's K-A-R-U-W-H-A. Uh, Karufa, which actually means four eyes, which was the nickname that Māori gave um, the missionary Henry Williams because he wore glasses. <laughs> Classic. So um, go to karufa.org.nz uh, and th- Sam's got a whole bunch of history and a whole bunch of biographies on early Māori and particularly early Māori that engaged with the gospel. Um, he's got missions biographies on his website. It's really cool. Also, um, Dr. Alastair Reese also blogs on his website as well, so it's pretty cool. Um, but the reason I want to talk to Sam is because Karufa run an annual pilgrimage to Waitangi over Waitangi weekend. And I sat down with Sam and uh, I've agreed with my family we are going to go up to Waitangi on February uh, 3, 4, 5 and 6 in 2017 and just hang out. Now, if you've never been to Waitangi over over the um, Waitangi weekend, it's actually amazing. It's not just all about protesting the little snippets you get on the media. It's actually a fun family festival of music, bands, culture, all this sort of stuff. There's some very, very cool stuff going on. So why don't you consider coming and joining us over the Waitangi weekend um, in 2017. Um, you can find out all the information about that on Sam's website, karufa.org.nz. Now, the last thing I'd like to say as well is that over the last few weeks, I just want to mention a little bit about the music. The intro track that you're listening to for this podcast is from an album um, called um, Karakia, which uh, Cindy, the artist is Cindy Ruakiri. Um, an incredible uh, Māori prophetic uh, wahine toa woman who um, ministers quite profoundly but yeah go and check out her album on iTunes buy all of them they've got some real cool stuff also last week we featured um, Edge Kingsland's Wairua Tapu or HS Welcome Holy Spirit Welcome so go and check out Edge Kingsland on iTunes as well um, yeah but uh, let's get into talking to Sam go get that
And we're on. See how it's going up like that? So we've got to try and keep see how we go mm. quiet. But anyway. All right, here we are. In, um, in what is this hut? City, hut, valley, lower hut, upper hut? Hut, hut valley, Waifetu. Waifetu here in St. Paul's Vicarage. And today, uh, on a beautiful, um, sunny Wellington day, uh, we're, we're talking with Mr. Samuel Carpenter. Um, so, ko wai koe ho. Kia ora, Jay. Kia ora, kia ora, Sam. <laughs> um, did you want a pepe hard, did you? Oh, bro, bust out, bro, bust <laughs> out. Ko pukikoe te maunga, ko waikato te awa, ko Bombay te waka, ko Ngāti Pākehā te iwi, ko Ngāti Te Tiriti te iwi. Nō reira, yeah, tēnā koe. Tēnā koe, tēnā koe, Sam. Um, it's look. It's awesome to be talking with you today, and of course, we did a little event here yesterday mm. together, which was really cool. We had about thirty-ish, thirty-five people maybe show up um, to hear some of the story about history. So that was really rad. But um, look, I've known Sam for a few years now. Uh, he is an amazing man, and so let's get into some of his stories. So, bro, I mean, tell us a bit about you know who you know who you are and. <coughs> Um, you know, where you're from, you got a family, what do you do, blah, blah, blah. Tell us your story, bro. <laughs> uh, where to start with the story, um, as I as I indicated in the Pepeha, I grew up in a little town called Pukikoi, south of Auckland, already right in the <laughs> middle of Waikato and, and Auckland, um, on the border almost. Um, so sort of Is that to... what we refer to as counties? Counties Manukau, yes, uh, counties boy. Uh, <clears throat> Um, so yes, my grandfather was actually really mad on rugby. He actually just passed away uh, a few couple of months ago, uh, and he was a real county supporter. Um, so yeah, grew up there. Um, eldest of six kids. Father was a school teacher, uh, primary school teacher. Mother was a nurse before she had all the kids. Yeah. <laughs> and, She's still a nurse, right? Yeah, still a nurse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, although all of her kids have left yeah. home now. Okay. <clears throat> and um, so eldest of six, so it was some good times, we had some good times, and went to Auckland University to study law and arts. Law and arts. <laughs> law and arts, in 1996 was my first year. Okay, so uh, you're a lawyer. I was a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the light and I'm now an historian. <laughs> okay, you're a lawyer slash historian. Oh, no, ex-lawyer. <laughs> ex-lawyer. And now you're an historian. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, so I got a law degree, got, got the arts degree. Uh, actually, spent sort of too long at university initially, like spent right. six years, right? Because um, I I added on another year doing Te Reo and New Zealand history, right. Māori studies. Uh, that's why I took six as opposed to okay. five. Okay. Anyway, so then I practiced law for a few years. I've probably in total I've practiced for about six years. Okay. And then sort of changed tact and. Started to do work for the Waitangi Tribunal okay. back, in, back in 08. When we were living, when my, when my wife and I, Hannah and I, were living up in Hokianga, um, learning te reo at a little tech up how, how long were you learning te reo for? So I started te reo at university, would have been around 2000, and like just formal university courses, uh, did a couple of night courses at AUT in Auckland, yep. which I think is still going, very yep, good. still going, yep, a lot of the guys listening yep. to this have done some of that, yeah. Yep, very good, maybe some of the same tutors as well. 
and then decided that we wanted to take it further and escape city life for a little bit. So right. so we went up and did a diploma. I finished a diploma, which was basically two years. Two years of full time of language. Learning. Yeah, pretty much. With um and. Kaitaia, was it? In uh, Hokianga, in, Hokianga, in, in oh. Rawini, which is oh, where the, oh, the theory, the theory oh, yeah, takes yeah, yeah. off to the oh, other side. So it was there that you did it? Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. Oh, fantastic. Oh, it's a be- beautiful place and, um, yeah, magic, magic, right. really, just back to, back to flax roots, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean what, what I'm interested in talking with you about today is, you know, you've, you've mentioned you've been a lawyer, you're a historian, you, you've worked for the Waitangi Tribunal, so you're mm. doing stuff there. But how did all this interest in, you know, you are, as you mentioned, Ngāti Pākehā, you mm. know, or, um, or, you know, Tangata Tiriti, mm. um, uh, how, what, like for you, what initiated a move to go, man, I need to learn today or I need to learn about the treaty or I need to know more about the Māori world, you know, because it's obviously not in your family story, is it? Well, not, not that I know of. Not really in my immediate family right. story, though if I go back into my early years, my parents actually went to a little for a time, a little Māori Baptist congregation in Pukekoe. Okay. Uh, Puna Ote Ora. Okay, yeah. That um, some people will remember. It's and still there, right? There's still, the, the building's still there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's kind of not far away from Ngāhoe Whamarae okay. in, in Pukekoe. Um, so there was a little Baptist Māori congregation there. My parents, for whatever reason, went there um, for, for a time, probably only a couple of years or something, oh, two or three years. And then that congregation combined with the main Baptist congregation in Pukekohe, okay, uh, which we ended up going to for a number of years, like through my teens, and that was a little bit of a, but a bit of a context for, yeah, okay. for I guess or being being exposed to some some Maori tanga, yeah, um, wasn't certainly wasn't very um, wasn't that uh, extensive um, or intensive. Um, but you know, we, we, we went to the odd um uh, Marae event in, in San right. uh, Tangi. Um and heard people and, and we sang a few Christian songs, <laughs> you know, the, the sort of classic <laughs> classic <laughs> few like Etiariki. Yeah, Etiariki. Yeah. All those ones. Um, and and actually Lionel Stewart was the um the pastor of Franklin Baptist oh, right, for a number of years right, right. When, when we were there. Right. As well. Tumuaki of he was Tumuaki of Baptist Māori Ministry. That's right. Um, now Kaihotu is the title. Right. Uh, anyway, so that, so that was a okay. bit of exposure, but it wasn't really until I got to university, year one legal systems, um, legal systems one hundred one, is where I got exposed to treaty stuff. Right. And, and is that what of, fired up the passion? That's that's what. That's what I can link it to. Really? Um, so I was, I can actually... Le- legal <laughs> Studies 101. Legal Studies 101. So all of this stuff was like totally, in a sense, mind-blowing because I hadn't heard it before. Right. right? You know, the, How old were you? I was 18, 19. Okay. Yep. So, so 1996 or thereabouts and sitting in a legal systems lecture with a Māori, <laughs> le- Māori lecturer talking about the treaty, land, land wars, yep. land confiscations... Confiscation acts, um, okay. and like the feeling in the room was really, 
it was pretty intense. And then there was she was getting some flat coming out the other way. And from who? From, 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 from the students. Like, okay. Or some pretty um, vigorous <laughs> uh, expressions of view, opinion. Right. And I can remember sitting there in the lecture, th- lecture theatre thinking, I really want to make a contribution to whatever this situation is. You know, the situation of people actually not knowing the stuff and being totally blindsided by the stuff that's happened that we don't know about yeah, and, right. and, yeah. and just the kind of yeah, right. in, in the room. I mean, what, what happened? Like, what was going on inside of you? Like, well, I, I think it def- there's something was definitely stirring yeah. because I can, I can definitely link... That was a moment in time where something happened to me, I guess, internally. What was it? Was it, in a, obviously it's not, was it, like, was that, I, I need to know more? Or was it like, this is this, right? Um, it, was, it was probably a whole mix of things. This is really important. Okay, what I don't right, know about okay, it. Right. Why, why are these people disagreeing on right. uh, Why is there such strong feeling on this? Right. Um, and just the... I don't know some sort of impulse towards peacemaking or reconciliation. Wow. You know, we need wow. we need wow. this situation needs to be resolved in some wow. way. Wow, right. Um, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't have articulated it probably like that at the time. That's a great but, way but to that's, articulate that. But yeah. that's kind of what I think I was sort of feeling. An impulse to peace and reconciliation. Yeah. Lord, keep let it, let that happen. Wow, man. <clears throat> so then it really kind of went from there. So. I sort of developed that interest in, in history and, and Māori law, did, did those sorts of papers okay. through law school. Okay. Then, I did, as I said, I did the extra year, which is really pursuing this track, the extra year in Māori studies, te reo, and New Zealand history. Um, and then I didn't stop studying, did it, <laughs> was practising law, started a post-grad history degree like a year or two into practicing law yeah um so did a did a ma ma thesis and then worked for the started working for the waitangi tribunal and did a report really? on henry williams and james busby so how long <laughs> were you working for the tribunal and i mean how did that even come about did you did you <laughs> advertise in the paper or did someone come and knock on tap on your shoulder or what well when, How does one start working for the Waitaki Tribunal? When, when, <laughs> I, when I think about how how all this has happened, it, it's sort of quite amazing. Like, right. It was, in some ways you could say it was right place, right time. Yeah. So we were in Hokianga, I was learning to do at the time. Yeah. I'd just finished my master's thesis, which was on parliamentary debates of the 1850s and 60s on, on Māori issues. Okay. Um, and... So in some ways it was right place at the right time. And then I'd, I'd actually met a guy, a historian who worked for the tribunal at a young historians conference in Wellington. Okay. And I, I sent him, I flicked him an email and said, um, I'm interested in doing some work for the tribunal. How does that, how does that work? He, and then somebody got in touch with me, somebody else. Um, I think I think probably I sent sent my MA thesis um, right. to one of the one of the historians that was working on the Northland Inquiry, and. They said, "Would you be interested in doing some research for Stage One, um, Taraki or the Northland Tribunal Inquiry?" It was almost <laughs> as simple as that. Wow. Um, and, and did you go yes, or did you have to think about it? Or? I pretty much jumped at it. <laughs> yeah, right. Because it was just right down my alley. Wow! Um, wow! Yeah. And they they asked you to research a 
very specific thing, and mm. what, which was. So I was asked to research, to look into the understandings that James Busby and Henry Williams had about the treaty, okay, and about the Declaration of Independence, which was okay. five years prior. So very, very quickly, like uh, you know, and don't spend a lot of time on it. But who was James Busby? Like British resident had been well, appointed. So what's a British resident? Yeah. You know, okay, like, so a, a British resident was sort of like a diplomatic post, or okay. uh, an appointment, oh, like an ambassador, or something. almost like an ambassador. Okay, a, a diplomatic post. It was meant to represent the British government interests in a in a foreign okay. place. Right before there's any sort of British government or anything like that. Yeah, before any sort of formal. And okay. and, they, and these people were around the place. Okay. Like they had them in India, like the parts okay. of India that the British didn't directly rule. Okay. They had some residents. Okay. So so James, yeah. that's who James Busby was. Yeah. He was like so 1833, 1833, he arrived with his family uh, in Northland, in the Bay of Islands. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And and then um, then there was Henry Williams, which uh, of course we'll get into. Um, but they, why don't we just, man, give us a, br- uh, uh, you know, the, the pop version rundown of Hefakaputanga. So like like <laughs> we don't really know about that. No. New Zealand signed a Declaration of Independence. Yeah, it's it's an intriguing. It's so, it's so intriguing to talk about with uh, the U.S. election, of course, just happening. But anyway, <laughs> another story. Yeah, well, about one of the earliest declarations of independence was the American one. Of okay, course, uh, like in, in modern history. Do you think the the Maori one was inspired by that? I think that James Busby, who was part of formulating this declaration for Maori to sign, was was probably aware of, he would have definitely been aware of the history of the, the American colonies okay. and the American um, American War of Independence okay. um, and so on. So that, that would, he would have been aware of that because um, he was an educated, reasonably educated man. Okay. Yeah. So what is the, what is the declaration? What is it? Basically, it's where Mr. Busby got some chiefs together um, and said, guys, I think, you need to think about um, declaring your independence as a, as a collective, from or declaring your independence, declaring your sovereignty, if you like, um, from uh, any other foreign nation. Right. So you you actually um, put a put your flag flagpole in the sand and say this is this is who we are. Um, this is our land, and nobody else has a right to right. it. And what? Why? <laughs> I mean. I, I don't think Māori would have been thinking they needed to do that, or maybe they did, I'm not sure. But what, why did James Busby think that Māori needed to do that mm. or wanted them to do that? I think there's a number of reasons, but a couple of the main ones are probably that from from the very beginning of his appointment, he was sort of instructed to try and bring about some sort of basis for law and order, even though he had no police or militarily, military support with him. He was called the man of war without guns. Right. A sort of huh. cheeky name for him. So he was he was to try and control British subjects who were frequenting the shores of Aotearoa, uh, the traders and sealers and so on, who were thought to be lawless. Well, they were lawless, most of them. And um, control them. And, and in order to do that, his idea... Busby's idea was let's get the chiefs together yeah. and get them to create a framework whereby they can basically make laws and okay. govern. Okay. So that that was oh, sort cool. of his idea. Um, I I think it was it was 
definitely his idea, but it was also an idea that had been around a little while right. that that chiefs might actually get together and conduct some sort of government okay. for the country. Okay. Partly, and bearing in mind that we've had, by the mid-1830s, we've had like 10, 15 years of pretty brutal musket wars and so on, yeah, where right, the okay. cut, which is to rip the country apart. And so there, there's a kind of real need in some ways for for just law and order, some yeah. basis for that. Yeah. Um, and then the other particular reason that, that provoked the declaration was that a, a Frenchman called the Theory had turned up and in the Hokianga. Chardon? Uh, What's his name? Chardon did. Chardon? Oh, do you know his business? Anyway, I forget, forget the detail. Anyway, the Theory had turned up, Baron, Baron the Theory, he, he was of some sort of aristocratic yeah. birth, French, Frenchman. Oh, I met someone recently related to him. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there are quite a few of theories, I think, around the place. Yeah. And he'd. He'd basically said that he he'd actually made some sort of declaration himself that he was a sovereign a chief of this sort of chunk of territory up north. He he was. Yeah, yeah. He'd actually not the chiefs, but him. Yeah, he'd actually <laughs> declared his so, sovereignty over a decent slice of Aotearoa. Uh, okay. Um, I forget the exact part that he was claiming sovereignty of, but he partly that was based on a purchase that he'd made or somebody had made for him um, of land from chiefs uh, oh, north. Classic. but he'd actually he'd actually sent this declaration ahead of him before he even arrived he sort of sent sent oh, it to gosh. the I think he'd put, sent it to New South Wales perhaps and also the missionaries and various people in New Zealand saying this is who I am I'm arriving as the the sovereign chief so you guys better get ready oh. so so of course, being French, this wasn't good news for <laughs> old James there, right. um, Mr. Ah, Busby. So, okay. so it was partly, partly provoked by that, um, and <laughs> I, I mean, there's there's probably another n- number of other stories you could you could it's, tell about what provoked it, but but those are some of the main ones. Pissing competition. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, um, what was Henry Williams's role in the declaration? <clears throat> so Henry Williams was the chief. Church Missionary Society missionary at the yeah. time. I don't think we've sort of we haven't about talked about. Oh, yeah, Henry. so yeah, yeah. So Church Missionary Society mission started with Samuel Marsden planting a settlement in eighteen fourteen. Yeah, the first three sort of mechanic missionaries, as they were called, because they were all sort of um, tradesmen. Okay, and uh, Marsden was based in New South Wales. He he didn't come here to live. <clears throat> um, he also started missions in the Pacific. or was involved with that as well. And was the prison chaplain, um, or at least, yeah, he he was chaplain to the penal colony of Samuel New South Marsden. Wales. Samuel Marsden okay. was. Right. Uh, so that's taking it back to eighteen fourteen, and even yeah. prior to that. Then we come through to Henry Williams, who arrived in eighteen twenty three with his wife Mary Ann. I think they had three kids by that time, and he becomes the head missionary here. How old was Henry Williams when he first got here? Do you know? I was just actually refreshing my memory on this before. Uh, these were quite young people. Uh, he was actually 30, 31. Oh, he that, uh, for some reason, I thought he had retired. No, he was no. He retiring age. I got that wrong. So he, he was he, still a young man. Oh, I mean, wow. Um, <clears throat> if, do, we, do we want to do a, a thumbnail sketch of his, okay. uh, of his story? Or sure, gonna, yeah, let's do a little... little... Or, or shall we finish the declaration first? 
Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. Whatever you think flows best. Maybe just finish the declaration. The declaration. Yeah, yeah. Spend, we've spent so, a bit of time so, on this. So the, so the declaration, he was involved uh, because um, he, was, he was the missionary, he missionary on the spot um, and had been involved with Bible translation, right. obviously primarily. Um, he he, underst- he understood the language. He'd been there, what, for 10, 10 12 years by, by 1825 when the declaration okay. was made. Um, so he was involved. Right, uh, I think his brother, it, yeah. William, was also involved, who, who was probably the better linguist. Uh, he was trained yeah, in, in, in the classics. He, yeah. went, he went to Cambridge, William Williams. Um, and so... Um, yeah, I mean, he he yeah. was definitely around at the time as well. Um, okay. Anyway, so so they they were involved and in, and they translated, I think, what was a, a an English text of the Declaration into Tadel that that various chiefs entered into. Uh, okay. In the north, uh, and then over the years leading up to the treaty in eighteen forty, um, I think by eighteen thirty nine they got. They were still getting signatures. James Busby was still getting signatures to oh, his declaration. Oh, is that right? Okay. Including in the last century, going moving more down, moving south? more more south. south so, yeah. I mean, the idea that it was just because this was in Northland, of course. Yeah, the, the, the Northland, but yeah. where it all started was Barbons. Yeah. Um, I mean, people who have derided the declaration throughout history as just an insignificant thing. I think someone said it was a paper pellet fired off at Baron de Theory. You know, <laughs> uh, just right. to kind of. Right, you know, get rid of this crazy Frenchman um, <laughs> pretensions to sovereignty, um, and I mean that was part of the story. But I think that in some, it was a serious endeavour by Busby and by the Chiefs, yeah, okay, to to say we are we are the, the rulers yeah, here right, right. in simple terms. Um, when we, you say we, not. Busby, right? Not Busby. But my chief's here. Yeah, yeah. So Busby wasn't looking to get an own power trip for him to be the ruler, well, or was he? Well, or was I mean, he, there's, was there's a, a suggestion a that um, that Busby saw himself as an advisor to, oh, okay. to any yeah, right. confederation of right, chiefs okay. that might be established. But What is that, Secretary of State or no? Something, oh. something like that. I mean, and yeah. the, the British sort of did various things like this all around the empire that in terms right. of working with indigenous elites to... Okay. Um, enable trade, and, enable whatever. I mean, in a nutshell, the declaration declares what? Declares the the sovereignty, the rule, right. the independence of Māori. The United... Of the United Tribes, or the Confederation of Tribes, established this, yeah. uh, on paper, established yeah. a government. But cool. in reality, what happened is didn't really get going. Okay. Um, so just finishing that little story... The last signature Busby collects is from Chief De Fiddle Fiddle, which is actually really interesting. That is interesting. De Fiddle Fiddle, who becomes the first Māori king in the 1850s, in 1856, um, he actually signs this declaration way back wow, in 1839. Um, and so it's quite interesting to sort of trace those. Wow, um, yeah, that is. <laughs> so, so he signs a declaration um, as a sort of confederation of chiefs yeah uh, in a sense sort of elevating chiefs to become like a ruling body yeah okay um or assembly the idea was that they would meet annually and make laws yeah okay 
But as I say, that didn't really that didn't happen. Really happen right. That didn't really happen. So, I mean, let's move on to Henry and going into the treaty. So, um, we're from 1835 onwards, what? How, how did we go from 1835 to signatures being collected in 1839 to then, you know, a couple of months later, moving into the treaty? Like, what? Mm. What's the circumstances that brought that about? And let's, you know, let's tell that story zeroing in on Henry. So what, mm. you know, what what was he thinking and what was he seeing in the world? So to start with his, just a brief snapshot of his bio. Um, he was a Navy man. Um, in other words, he'd been in the British Navy. Um, actually, he entered it when he was 14. Fourteen. He was fourteen when he entered the navy. Oh, uh, if you've ever watched that Russell Crowe movie, it's one of my favourite ones, Master and Commander, yeah. Far Side of the World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, my, my, you'll see those midshipmen there. Yeah, they they're young boys basically. Okay. Like, so that's that's a reality. Okay. Kid, basically, kids, uh, fighting. You know, actively fighting. Um, so it was it was pretty brutal, and he actually saw real engagements. Through that time, um, the the most dramatic one is when, in the war against the states, so they were still fighting America as late as eighteen twelve. There was a war against um, between Britain and, and the United States in eighteen twelve to fifteen. Oh really? And he was in that war, and there was an occasion where um, they were blockading. The British were blockading a port in the states. Uh, an American ship broke free of the blockade. It was called the President. Good, good title. <laughs> um, Henry's ship and probably others chased it down. They, they, they took it captive. So they, they actually took the president captive. Took the president captive. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this is a that great could story. be handy right now. Yeah, <laughs> took the president captive, um, and he was a member of the prize crew that basically sailed the ship, the president, um, through Bermuda, I think, and then back to Britain. Oh, gosh. Uh, and it was actually partly demastered, and they ran into storms, uh, and like they actually, I think, came close to sinking um, on this voyage back. So it was, oh, it was wow. pretty dramatic. Um, he got injured at some stage. I'm, I'm not sure if that was that engagement or another, uh, and it's an injury that sort of affected him later in life, um, like, you know, like old injuries. They, yeah, okay. they tend to yeah. ache. Um, so... I think it was in the league or something. Okay. Anyway, so so he, he was a navy man and um, he had a fam- family in the navy. The interesting thing is that he, although he became missionary for the Church Missionary Society, that was a Anglican body, yeah, or at least connected to the Church Church yeah. of England. He had been raised in the Nonconformists. Uh, what the Wesleyan? Uh, not not the Wesleyans. Actually, one of. Um, the nonconformist churches were sort of the old Puritan okay. Reformation okay. era, or let's date okay. from that in England, okay. that weren't formally part of the Church of England. Okay. Um, and so he, his father, at least his grandfather, was a minister in a church um, that actually he grew up in, um, down near Portsmouth, actually, okay. with the, the Navy base. Okay. So, so he was actually he grew up with the sights and sounds of the sea, but yeah. also with a strong nonconformist yeah, okay. tradition, which I think is actually quite an insight into who he was, right. and because yeah. um, he wasn't a churchman, right? Okay. You know, he wasn't kind of an establishment right. man, right? Um, right. And I think, and you got to remember that 
that England was still very hierarchical in, right. the, in this in this time, and the church was sort of church and state were quite intertwined in the period he was growing up. Um, anyway, so he God. eventually becomes any of this Yeah, he eventually yeah. becomes a missionary through the influence of some family members. Actually, one of his uncles or cousins uh, was a Ch- um, Church of England vicar, who was a member of the Church Missionary Society, and said, "Hey, when he left the navy." Uh, after the end of the, the French Wars and the American Wars, so about eighteen fifteen, um, there was a period where he was considering missionary work, and eventually decided that he was called. Wow! Um, it's clear that he felt a call. Wow! And his wife as well. So he married Marianne Colton, who was um, possibly even slightly higher social echelon than 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 he was. Um, like she was a daughter of an alderman, like a councillor okay. in Nottingham. Okay. Um, Robin Hood. Maid Marian. Maid Marian. Who's that? This is Maid Marian. <laughs> apparently, apparently, she was she was quite an attractive young young lady. And back in the day. But back in the day. <laughs> um. So he they they marry in in the eighteen twenties and they come out to New Zealand in eighteen twenty three. Uh, the musket wars are full, full on. Full on. So oh, right. So they arrive here and the musket, musket yeah. war. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Gosh. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're right into the period where Hongi Hickers going south, you know, just blowing south, blowing, blowing people away, bringing back slaves, hundreds, perhaps thousands of slaves um, over the, over those few years. Flip. Man, yeah. I, I mean, I heard, I've, I've, I've read stories of like, that they would, like, bury slaves in the sand with their heads sticking out and mm. kick, kick their heads off or something. I don't know. There's all sorts well, of crazy stories, you know, baskets of human flesh being sort of right. carried on people's shoulders right past so the settlement. So these like good that. young little missionaries come off yeah. and that's what they're arriving into. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, wow. But, but, you know, yes and no. Uh, there's, there's, <laughs> yeah, right. There's, yeah. there's light and dark in yeah, the story. Yeah, and, and yeah. I mean, the fact is that, that all the missions were hosted, were protected by, by um, host chiefs. In fact, sort of slight irony is that Hongi Hika was one of those. He was one of the early protectors of the, the first mission yeah, settlements okay. in the north. Um, the Paihia mission, if you know Paihia now, it's like a bustling tourist town. The Pai, I mean, the, that was basically a mission station. That's where, okay, <laughs> that's right. where Paihia comes from okay. in terms of the settlement we know right. today. And the, the old stone church there is the site where the Paihia mission was. So they were protected by a chief of the southern Bay of Islands. Oh. Um, to Kauke, um, who knew Marsden, um, his son I think had had been over to stay with Marsden and and learned, you know, how to mm. read and write and all that. Yeah. Um, and that and that went on a lot. Um, chief's sons going over to stay in Marsden's seminary. Um, so how did we get on to yeah. this? So anyway, um, Williams. Um, the Williams arrived in eighteen twenty three. They 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 are hosted there in a sense. They're welcomed there and protected there by by some local chiefs, and they established the mission station. Um, and things move on. They start translating the Bible in a focused way yeah. once they've worked out a 
an orthography of the Māori language as in how to represent okay. language in a written form. Oh, okay. Um, and that's almost a work in progress through those years. Right. They translate the prayer book, which is pretty important in the Church of England, okay. you know, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which they use in the services. Um, and these are things that Māori actually end up, they end up memorising and, wow. and memorising by heart. Wow. You know, even if they, they might not read necessarily, they'll be in services where these things are repeated and repeated and repeated. Right. Um, and being an oral culture... Yeah, you know, right. it gets into yeah. the gets into the brain. Yeah, yeah. And I think we sometimes forget that. Yeah. You know, it's not only the 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 literacy that's that's impacting. It's the fact that you, people are going yeah. to church and, and they ability actually to remember. Remember, yeah, yeah true, <clears throat> true. So, true. What else that's about the early mission? Oh, I mean, the other the other big part of William's story which really got me when I first encountered the story as a history student back at. Auckland University, yeah, yeah. which really got me. That's another thing that really yeah. got me into all of this. Right, yeah. Going back to him, your first question, yeah, yeah, you know, I just, just I, I came across this biography here called Te Winamu by Lawrence Rogers, which is nineteen seventy three, in the Auckland University Library on the fifth floor or whatever it was, history section, and um, I thought, what is this stuff? You know, I never, <laughs> no, no one's ever told me about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what what Williams became almost known for, and and how he earned his money over time amongst Māori was he went he would go on peacemaking ventures with these war parties that were heading south and endeavour to um, convince them that fighting was not the way Gosh. that they should actually make peace. So he actually, there's pictures or drawings of of the mission schooner right in the midst of this. This big Tawa. Tawa, Waka Tawa that was heading heading south. Um uh, and, and you've got to remember it wasn't just peacemaking on those sort of coastal um excursions, it was also peacemaking in the north as well. Oh. Because the northern oh. peoples were at times uh, had had their had their issues right. internally. Right. Uh, even in the Bay of Islands. Right. So and there were quite a few sort of key flare-ups yeah. through the 1820s and 30s. So in, t- in terms of a context for the treaty, that's a big part of it. The Musket Wars, um, the, the, the enslavement uh, of many, peop- many people from those southern tribes, many of the missionaries take them into their homes and in the schools, yeah. into the mission schools. Yeah. So they actually become Christian, many of those. Yeah. And then when they're released in the 1830s, uh, for probably a number of reasons, but one reason would be that their masters had to actually become Christian as well. Yeah, right. They are released, they go back to their home peoples and they take the word and they take Christian belief and right. practice with them right. uh, and, and often evangelise their own people without any white missionary on the spot. Right. You know? So it's quite an amazing story, which you were talking about yesterday. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Henry, if we think of... Um, Henry's um, role in the Treaty of Waitangi, Te Tiriti or Waitangi. Mm. Um, let's, I mean, let, let's talk about that. So uh, Henry is given a, tr- a translation, or given the English version, on February the 4th, 1840. Yep. And he's asked, hey, can you translate this by the morning? So him and his son Edward stay up all night and translate, of course. So 
why, why don't, you know, in your study and your working for the tribunal, let, let, let's talk about his role in the treaty and maybe why don't you tell us where some of the discrepancies are that mm-hmm. create some raru raru, you know, mm-hmm. some riffraff or whatever over, over the situation. And, uh, you know, I, what I'd love to hear from you is what, what, what do you think Henry's intentions are with translating to Tiriti? What, did, what was his vision? What was his vision? You know, if, does that is that clear? Yep. That, yeah. No, it's so tot- let's talk. Let's, let's, t- let's talk about Henry in, t- that, in that regard. T- totally clear. <laughs> to <laughs> the extent that yeah, any question <laughs> of a complicated historical uh, <laughs> thing is 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 clear. It's certainly not easy to answer. Um, <clears throat> but it's something I thought quite a bit about, and I produced right. this report for the tribunal, which yeah. what it really did was it got at the what I would describe as the treaty orthodoxy since um, a person by the name of Ruth Ross, an historian, a very talented historian, yeah. in the 1970s wrote an article that you were talking about yesterday in the seminar, I wrote an article that basically said the translators got it wrong, right. Williams got it wrong, um, the words they should have used to translate, in particular, the idea that Māori would transfer their sovereignty right. from um, themselves right. to the British Crown, um, that that the translation was not adequate, and even it was a mistranslation, and right. even it was an intentional mistranslation. mistranslation. To, um, to dupe Māori. Yeah, to, to convince to, them this was... What they should be doing and um, downplay the the situation. So, uh, but as you rightly said in your in your um, in your seminar yesterday, um, this was a really important article for a number of reasons. And one was just the linguistic sort of analysis, but also the 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 fact that she highlighted that. The, the Māori text was the one that most Māori signed. Yeah. And this really, Te Tiriti o Waitangi, is the, the true text of the treaty right. because it's the one that Māori right. signed. Right, yeah. So, uh, and and I totally, totally agree with that. Yeah. Totally agree with that point. And, yeah. that, and because previously, of course, in, a, in Pākehā European historiography, that's the English text that sort of is assumed to be almost the text that right. you go off. Um, so Ross's article was very important in that regard and, and shifting the shifting the right. attention. Um, what she said, um, if we can get into the yeah, detail about, Hen- about Henry. Yeah, that that because um, what what the couple of steps back, there are three articles uh, in the treaty. An historian, you always got to get the context. This is good. <laughs> there are three articles in the treaty, and uh, and I don't want to make this a treaty one hundred and one, but. Hey man, it's good. It is this. It is a treaty one. It's treaty one hundred and one. Yeah, it's good. They just call it that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there are three articles. The first article basically is the idea that the chiefs transfer their, their sovereignty in the English, uh, transfer their sovereignty to yeah. the British Crown to yeah. Queen Victoria, is expressed in the personal, and I think that's quite important. And in return, in the second article. The Queen guarantees to the chiefs their estates, or full possession of their estates, lands, fisheries, forests, etc. Right. Um, and and then the third article is a guarantee, almost you call it, of equal subjecthood, equal rights, um, that the 
guaranteeing to Māori the rights that British subjects right. enjoy. Right. So uh, in other words, citizenship. Citizenship. <laughs> it would be a modern way to say it. They, they wouldn't <laughs> hey, have used that word at the hey, time. Hey, you can be a citizen of your own land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you can be a citizen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were, The British wouldn't have used the word citizenship. Yeah. They would have used sub, subjects. subjects. Okay. You become a subject of, of your majesty. Um, so <laughs> what did... what? What's the issue here? The issue is uh, that Ross, what she said was in, in the in the Māori text when Williams uses uh, in Article 1 the word kawanatanga or government, governorship to translate the transfer of sovereignty, right. that that didn't adequately convey what sovereignty meant. To the English. Uh, to the English. And in particular she says what the word he should have used is mana, the idea that the, f- the full mana, the, the absolute authority of the land would be exercised by the British Crown, by right. Queen Victoria. So Māori would transfer their mana yeah. to the Queen. Yeah, to the Queen. Right. Say, and and yeah. so Ruth Ross says that he should have used that word. He should have, used that, he should have right. used that word. And, and she has some good reasoning for that. Yeah. And one of the reasons, the key reasons, is that five years before in the Declaration of Independence, the word mana is used to uh, kingitanga te mana, i te whenua, so kingship and mana of the land is declared um, by Māori and, right. and that, that's the English is more or less um, the sovereignty or the independence. Um, I haven't got the text in front of yeah. me. But Māori declare the sovereignty and independence of, of their land yeah. and the words of the user, kingship, kingitanga and mana. So the question is, should you have used mana? At least that's one question. And it's something I've thought quite a bit about. Yeah. Should he, yeah. should he have should he have used yeah. mana? Um, I've I've got a number of reasons for saying no. Mana was not the right, right, not the right translation. Um, one is that if you consider what mana meant to Maori, it was the essence of a chief's power and authority. Yeah. You know, both inherited from tūpuna, from ancestors, yeah. from the gods even, yeah. and also earned through their life through the actions yeah. so it, it was almost the personification or, or the most sort of personal expression of authority that that you could describe yeah. by this word mana um, would Māori have given their mana away? No No, I think if that was that was the um, that was used then um, then the treaty would have been a pretty hard ask yeah. Or much yeah. harder ask, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, not impossible necessarily. <clears throat> so, so that's one reason. But I don't think that's even the best, best explanation. Right. <laughs> because I think that, uh, in in Williams' mind, getting back to your question, what was his vision? I don't think that he saw that by the British becoming the sovereigns. Um, by, by Queen Victoria establishing a civil government in New Zealand via her governor, that that meant that Māori authority, uh, Māori mana, what do you have you describe, would be taken away. Right. Uh, in fact, I think that he thought British government would allow um, Māori authority and Māori rights to continue in a, in a material sense. Right. So chiefs yeah. would still right. be chiefs, right? right? Chiefs would still be chiefs, tribes would still be tribes, um, chiefs would still be able to exercise their role in relation to tribes, um, certainly in relation to land and right. the way land was transacted. 
um, and even in relation to custom, because what the instructions were from Norman B, um, back in England, the Secretary of State, to Governor Hobson when he came out were, um, don't interfere with Māori custom, apart from about two or three things. So the w- warfare, the right to make war, right. like within the country in particular. Okay. So you got to, you're to stop warfare. And that kind of makes sense, right? If you're establishing government, then you okay. don't want people fighting each other, right. groups fighting each other. So, And yeah. I, I think that would have been pretty clear to the, the chiefs that this was a new order, okay. that, that the governor was to ensure peace and good order yeah. and that the right to make war, tribe against tribe, was actually something that the governor would now be you know, okay. looking at that. Oh, okay. So, so right. the right okay. to make war and... and those kind of flashpoint customs that the British were concerned about, cannibalism, I forget if there's any particular ones that Norman B. mentions in the instructions. Okay. I think maybe infanticide. He, the phrase he uses is any customs contrary to the universal principles of humanity. Okay. Other than that, my right. custom continues. We, we can toler- we'll tolerate it okay. sort of thing. Right. Okay. So what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is um, what does British sovereignty mean? Does it mean that Māori lose their rights? Their mana. Right. In, in William's mind, my argument is no. Fun, like, in a material sense, not only no, they don't lose the rights, that British government will actually allow those rights to, to continue, to, to, yeah, okay. to, right. to exist. Um, because, again, the context is oh, the Musket Wars, yeah, yeah. the incoming British settlement. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got speculators in Sydney that are trying to buy up huge swells of Māori land yeah. from Māori who are you know, visiting Sydney. We've got New Zealand companies sending boats out without government sanction, buying up huge areas of land. I mean, we're sitting in Wellington, we're actually sitting on a piece of land that the New Zealand company negotiated in 1839 right. before the treaty. Right. They, they preempted everything. They, they sent out their ships <laughs> said, quick, get out there, let's, let's, so let's get, get there before the Crown gets there. Kind of. Yep. I, mean, I think that's pretty much yeah. what was going on. Yeah. Um, and, and the missionaries are very concerned about this. They're concerned about loss of Māori land. Land is, I think, a big big thing. And in a sense, loss of um, chiefly authority, in a sense. Um, the, the fact that chiefs can't control these British subjects that, are, that don't have any established law in a, in, a, in a European sense to control them. So if you come back to the question of mana... Um, I'm not even sure that it would have occurred to Williams to use that word, and if, and, if, and if it had, he would have just quickly discounted it because of one one. Because for the, him, Māori yeah. weren't going to be given up their money. There's yeah. no way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, I stand back and I think, okay, in a in a certain sense, you can make an abstract argument that mana is the best word in a Māori kind of yes. spirit. Yes, and it, uh, it's uh, the best word what, spiritually <clears throat> and. To, to connote or suggest this kind of absolute, almost divine authority. Yeah. That sovereignty kind of has similar connotations, okay. in, or at least did in, in the old European world, you know, because the kings would exercise. Yeah. But, but you've got to remember that, that if you're thinking about sovereignty in that sense, that, that Queen Victoria was not an absolute sovereign in, in 1840. You know, she, she couldn't, she didn't rule by edict. <laughs> 
you know, the, the sort of sovereignty. Right. Not, in, not So not even in England was she the sovereign ruler? Yeah, yeah. So, so sovereignty is, is a constitutional monarchy. Yeah, okay, right. Um, it's, right. It's, 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 it's... So she the is crown rules submitted parliament. to parliament? Yeah. Right. The crown, the crown, I think, the way that it would have been described in technical terms and at that time, um, and I don't think this is to be anachronistic would be that the, the sovereign te- in technical constitutional terms is the crown and parliament okay the crown with her councillors in parliament yeah, okay. with the commons assembled with the yeah. lords assembled yeah. makes the law yeah. uh, and then the crown's ministers administer the law enforce the law right um, so sovereignty is not an easy yeah, thing okay. to eat around. Okay. Um, so although you can make like an ad, I guess at a very high abstract level that yeah. mana is kind of connotes this sort of idea of absolute authority yeah. and divine authority, mm. that this <clears throat> this is the sort of authority arguably that Queen Victoria would be exercising. What was actually happening on the ground was that the a British imperial personage, Queen, was sending her governor to basically create a civil government in a in a far flung okay <laughs> right territory so the goal create a government which is why in maori mm-hmm. henry williams used the word kawanatanga kawanatanga so right. that's the word he used that's the word, instead yes. of mana thanks for getting me back su- to the all to the words like all powerful yeah, your powerful you know, your, your mana he said no yeah. it's not that that they're yeah. seeding yeah Kawanatanga. Yep, they're agreeing that the that the queen, which is not even a seating. I don't think Māori ceded anything. Or yeah. Was that... Well, I mean, there's an argument, and even in the Māori text, suggests it's more that, an invitation. It's more like an invitation. It's an agreement that yeah. the queen will exercise this form of authority. Yeah. A governorship, a, a civil government in in New Zealand. Yeah. Seating, yeah. inviting, different concepts, different things. Like, it's not that Māori ceded anything, it's that, no, it's an invitation. Mm. Uh, Queenie, come and mm. govern mm. with us over yep. these areas yep. here. So that's what Henry Williams believed in, right? Or I think there's enough other statements that he made that, that his big concern was protection of Māori rights, uh, land, uh, and other rights... And and just law and order. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> like, right. like, yeah. We we need we need law and order. Right. Um, because it's, it's, there's the hellhole of the South Pacific. So how how of the South there's, Pacific? There's the muscle wars. There's the land speculators. Yes. There's the New Zealand Company. Yeah. There's, I mean, if, with or without a treaty, settlement was going to happen. Yeah, so, okay. the missionary missionaries. I mean, glo- globalization. This was the. Peak. Yeah, this, like, is, this is globalisation yeah. at the time. Yeah. And and the fact is that that Māori were not passive. It's really important to, to get this in, in, in our heads, I think. Māori were not passive victims of this yeah. process. They yeah. actually really Wanted. engaged with yeah. it. They've been engaging with it for over 40 years. Yeah. You know, they've been going to be on crewing, on sailing, mining ships right through right. the Pacific, further afield. Right. They'd, they'd been going to England... Um, yep. They'd met the king, Hongi Hika met the king. They'd, they'd, they'd stayed with the governors of New South Wales. Yeah. Um, and that invited in a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah, missionaries, right. you know. Right. 
being yeah. one of those right, things. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Please come here yeah. and do your thing. And so when, yeah. and actually that's a, almost sort of one way to kind of see the treaty debates that, you know, I often recounted about the Waitangi treaty debates, that you had one side that was saying, guys, we can't go back now, you know, we, we can't say no, go away, Governor. Yeah. Because we've invited all this other stuff in. Yeah, okay. The missionaries, the traders, um, you know, if we'd said no back then, this is actually what Wakanini says. Okay. He's one of the ones that sways the debate in our Waitangi. If we'd said no back then, then, yeah, maybe we could say no now. Okay. But the fact is we, we didn't uh, and we haven't. Um, and we've even sold land to these people. Um Oh, and then Waka Nene's... Waka, Waka sort of, oh, that was his line. Was then, and then the other line is, no, all. we're Māori, we're, na- we're natives, we don't need you, Governor. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, and then there's kind of a middle line yeah. where it says, no, we don't want you, Governor, but we'll keep the missionaries' things. Yeah, okay. Um, so, you know, there's a range. Okay. Oh, oh, oh man. <laughs> no, it's never easy, is it? It's never It's never easy. Um but I guess the last thing, not last thing, there's never a last thing about the <laughs> treaty, but the the implication that Ross, that Ruth Ross makes back in that article in 1972 that somehow the translations, or the mistranslation, whatever, has created the, all the issues with yeah. the treaty and so on, I think is a really long bow to draw mm. because really the issue is not, the fact that there might be two texts that can be read quite differently in different contexts. And, and let's admit that they can be. Because, yeah. you know, one's yeah. in English, one's in yeah. Māori. Yeah. There's two different worlds yes. operating there. Yeah. Um, that, that issue is not the text. The fact that the, neither text has been honoured. And that's okay. really... Okay. Um, that's really what... Uh, has has um, caused you know big big issues with yeah, the right. history. Right. Um, you know, although I was thinking that, that the idea, see where where this actually really reached the crunch point, and probably one of the sort of turning points in our history was the Whitetra dispute in Taranaki, where the Crown in actually eighteen sixty eighteen fifty nine, where the Crown said, "Yes, we'll buy off you, individual chief." Um, or individual landowner, even though these other chiefs are saying no, the tribe doesn't want to sell, yeah. and we when we speak for the tribe. So, um, in a sense, that was a test of kind of what the treaty meant. You know, right? Uh, were you going to go with like a really narrow sort of European version that no, basically we're the boss, you're not. We're the boss, you're not. But also, Maori custom doesn't really matter okay um, okay that, right yeah that that we're just going to impose a european version of individual ownership of land and oh, we don't right. we don't have to listen to this idea that well we don't we don't have to go on recognizing the fact that land is owned communally collectively yeah, and that chiefs, i'd love to do a whole podcast and that chiefs actually. speak yeah. for the group yeah in regard to land yeah um and so that's the way that it had been done for like good 15, 20 years by the Crown Land purchases when they went out. They, okay, they've they, been they, done in, in, in that sort of yeah, they, they, way. Yeah, they, they basically negotiated uh, with chiefs. customary title. In a way. You, you, could, you could argue All that. All up until... But, okay. but then when Māori began to 
to, and we're getting into a whole other yeah. issues here, but, <laughs> but I think it's quite important when they began to see the land disappearing from their possession they, and they started pulling back and say we don't want to sell, yeah. that's <clears> when the right. Crown started to have issues. We might have said we don't want to sell. Yeah, okay. So then they had to work out well, how we're going to do okay. this. Okay, oh gosh. Um, anyway. S- look, um, <laughs> look, let's... What, what's your desire, man? Like, what's your... You're obviously passionate about... You and Hannah, your wife, are passionate about Henry and... Um, Mary Ann Williams, you're you're actually mm. passionate about the treaty, and you're interested in this. Like, what, 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 what in this makes you tick, and wh- where, do, what are you pursuing? You know, what's your um, what's your um, what do you want to see? Justice, <laughs> big word, <laughs> justice, reconciliation, and obviously that's coming from a. Christian worldview, yeah. where these things are important, and we believe that you know God is the God of all creation, and that people need to be reconciled to each other. Yeah. Parts so, of the society need to be reconciled to yeah. each other, um, uh, and and to the funeral as well, to the land. Um, so that's to be theological about it. What does that look like? What does that look like? Yeah, and I, I think what Karifa trusts, and I don't think we even talk no, about we'll, Karifa we'll, trust we'll, yet. Uh, yeah, we'll talk but, about that. After but this. I mean, so I'm, I guess speaking personally, Kiwis need to know this story. Okay. As you can't do justice and you can't do reconciliation if you don't know what you're trying to reconcile. Okay. And right. and I think so. We need to know our story first. Right. Very nice to see. Yeah. Mm. And that, so that's really my, so my that's passion, what you're as, passion an, as an historian, as to well for, to understand Help the story. Them. Yeah, to understand yeah. the story for myself first. Yeah, okay. And then and then hopefully to help other people to understand it. Um, as well. You guys can't see this right now, but um, we're at Sam's office desk, and there are stacks of history books that he is reading through for his mahi right now. So he's very passionate about understanding the story. <laughs> um, so, Karifa Trust, bro, um, uh, I'm going to be joining you this next year, but we're, we're off to Waitangi, of course. Every, mm. I mean, every Waitangi, you take a crew of people yep. up there. Like, well, tell us tell us about that. So, these journeys, hiding uh, pilgrimages, really began in the year 2000, actually, okay. when I first went to Waitangi okay. over commemorations. and. So this is the, when I when all the stuff was stirring for me. I, yeah. I actually just discovered, I think, just before that, I'd discovered the Williams biography. I was doing this extra year of New Zealand history. You know, I'd been through law school, almost finished that, done all this Māori law stuff. Um, you know, totally new worlds. And I thought, why don't we go to Waitangi? Because I can't, <laughs> how can I be sure? Right. Well, obviously, you know, let's yeah. go to the place where this yeah. will happen, but also... Let's try and get past all the media yeah. reporting on it yeah. as well. That's one of my thoughts yeah. at the time. Okay. I want to actually experience this for myself. So me and a couple of my brothers went. We camped at Timurai. We were very much a minority, which is not necessarily an experience you have in New Zealand much, yeah, okay. uh, uh, depending on what communities you live in. Yeah. Uh, as, as a you know person of Pākehā descent, yeah. European yeah. descent, so it was an amazing experience. I tracked down a descendant of Henry Williams 
Elizabeth Lodbrook that first yeah. year I went up yeah. had an amazing talk with her oh, she wow. basically told me all the stuff that it was sort of like from the inside wow. and it was wow. also the way the story had impacted her wow. so personally wow um, like actually very emotional um, retelling and so discovered discovered that uh, made those connections um, I met the guy who smashed the America's Cup um, oh. Benjamin Nathan who'd oh. been it was out of the prison by then he'd written a book in prison he gave me his book oh classic still got it oh classic um, Benjamin <laughs> Nathan and uh, he was a fascinating guy and his book's fascinating and one of the things it does is it basically slams the missionaries for right. being in the advanced guard of colonisation and yeah. soften the Māori up yeah. so that they'd accept British right. government etc right. um, and um, I think that's obviously a distortion of the truth right. that's what I that's what I sincerely believe but yeah, yeah. Um, anyway I'm getting off track now yeah. so so we, we we keep going to Waitangi started taking, taking groups up there mostly sort of church yeah. youth group um, youth groups and then formed a trust charitable trust in 2005 Karufa Four Eyes which means <laughs> um, which is actually one of the Māori names, names for Henry Williams, for Henry Williams nick, yeah. nick, nick, nicknames Henry Williams yeah, yeah. if you go to Waitangi actually the street along the the waterfront between Pai here yeah. and Waitangi the treaty yeah. grounds is Karufa Parade so oh, it's really? actually named after, oh, wow. after, after him, him. So um, um, most of the streets around the earth. So you're taking you're doing another pilgrimage there in 2017. Yes. So next year we'll be heading up there again. Um, what do we do up there? We do a number of things. In recent years we've helped out in the kitchen. Yeah. Served in the Tatimadai kitchen, which hosts really quite a massive um, occasion. Lots of dignitaries um, are welcomed onto the marae. Um, so yeah. we've done that for a few years, and that's been really great um, yeah. for for our for our Rorupu. and we've um, done guided walks of various historic sites from Marsons Cross through to the Paihe Mission. Um, um, I'd really love to do the Rorupekapeka Pa, right. it's one of the battle sites of the New Zealand Wars. Okay. Um, got some contacts oh, with that. I know some people. Uh, I know some people. Um, <laughs> so we're always looking for new ways to access the story. Okay. So really what our pilgrimage is, is it's it's a, a put, put, put it rather blandly, it's like a learning and service experience. Yeah, you cool. get to be there, you get to see see everything that goes on, you know, all the colour, the yeah. pageantry, the waka yeah. launching, the Navy yeah. ships, the, the the prayer service is always a yeah. highlight for us, yeah, okay. five five a.m. the dawn process, yeah, okay. Waitangi day. Um, go to cool places uh, in the vicinity and meet yeah. some really great people and, and hang out. Basically, yeah, that's awesome. what, how it started. Really, just hanging out, and it just kind of evolved from from that. Awesome. So, would you like people to come? Definitely. And we'll find out information through. So our website is www.karufa.com org.nz so Karufa is K-A-R-U-W-H-A basically how it sounds karufa.org.nz yeah and you can email email me or us at info at karufa.org.nz oh cool I um, joined Sam for a day this year this year was actually the first day I went to, to Waitangi on Waitangi Day and because I wanted to go and see it for myself and um, we're we're fed on the media, we're fed nonsense. We are f- we are fed um, 
just little second snippets of what mm. goes on there. Um, my mind was blown away. It is a family festival. <laughs> yeah. It is It is fun. It's music and bands and face painting and blow-up bouncy castles and just families everywhere having a good time. So there are elements of protest, which you see on the news, but the Waitangi Day celebrations is not all about that at all. It's actually quite a fun day. So, look, come and join us next year um, in 2017. It'll be awesome. Well, Sam, mm. awesome to talk to you, bro. Uh, yeah. um, again, this one is about introducing you, and we will talk more. I'd love to talk more about the land mm. and motive behind land and um, the way that English law created, made up laws mm. around land, you yeah. know, based yeah. on different philosophies and that sort of thing. Mm. But um, we'll get into that next year. But mm. uh, for now, na mihi nui kia koe, moto kōrero. Um, it's brilliant, bro. It's awesome to hear you talk, eh? So thank you very much. Kia ora.